just hit 4.30, so we will go ahead and begin. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. And as you open to Ephesians chapter 6, we sort of um, set the stage for you for the whole premise behind this session. Over the last hundred or so years, there has been a shift in our understanding of what it means to raise, to train, to disciple the next generation. And that shift that has taken place has been a shift of specialization and compartmentalization. It's an idea that hasn't just affected the family. It's an idea that has affected really every aspect of our lives. Um, our world is becoming more and more specialized. It's hard to find just a regular family practice doctor anymore. Um, you know, there are specialists everywhere, uh, but it's really hard to find people who just do uh, general practice. Um, when it comes to law, uh, lawyers specialize in very particular, narrow areas. When it comes to the church, we have, you know, a pastor for everything. Um, you know, we, we have people who specialize in different areas. When it comes to educating children, no longer do we see the idea of the one-room schoolhouse where children of all ages uh, happen to be there, and they don't have grades. It's which reader are you in? Not how old are you, but how far have you advanced? Oh, you've advanced that far? Okay, there's a group over there that's advanced that far. You go with that group. And there's one person in that one-room schoolhouse uh, who's responsible for that training, for that education. The idea that parents are responsible for raising and training and educating and discipling their children is a thing of the past. We have absolutely bought into the whole it-takes-a-village mentality, um, and, and so much so that we don't understand that African proverb in its context, um, which was about a family having the support of people around them, now, when we say it takes a village, we mean to the exclusion of a mother and father, um, that children need to be weaned from their mother and father and from parental influence as early as possible and as often as possible so that they can be sort made, made part of the collective, if you will. Um, I, and as a result of all of this, we have lost something as it relates to raising and training and discipling our children. Parents feel absolutely overwhelmed, afraid to raise their kids, to train their kids, to disciple their kids, and God forbid to educate their kids. They feel absolutely overwhelmed because they're not specialists in these areas. And so we have, within the Christian community, the church, at times, which oversteps bounds and usurps in this area, and Christian schools, at times, 
which overstep bounds and usurp in these areas. And so what I want to do today is just lay a biblical foundation for our understanding of the responsibility for discipleship as a parental responsibility, which I believe in turn must shape the way we view our roles when it comes to Christian schools and when it comes to Christian churches. Um, Christian churches over the last several decades have basically said to parents, listen, we're trained professionals, don't try this at home. Amen. And then get upset because parents aren't doing what they're supposed to do within the context and confines of their homes. So here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment of the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This passage points clearly and unambiguously to the centrality of the home in the discipleship of the next generation. It is a parental responsibility. I'm going to say that and say that and say that and say that. And if that makes you uncomfortable, I want you to ask yourself a question. Why on earth would you be uncomfortable with such a clear biblical idea unless somewhere along the way you've bought into the lie that says it's your job as an educator that parents need to turn kids over to you so that you can get this done because you're better trained to do it, because you've been educated for it, because you've been certified for it, because you have credentials for it, and because they don't. Be careful if that's the idea. I say the same thing to pastors, youth ministers. Be careful, especially youth ministers. Be careful if that's your idea, that you think these are your children and your responsibility. That's not the case. You are at best, at best, a partner with these parents in carrying out their duties. And I believe having a proper orientation here will change the way that we approach our responsibilities. Several things here in this text that point us to the centrality of the home in this process. One thing that points us in that direction is the context here. If you look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, it falls within the context of the family codes here in the book of Ephesians. Now, the family codes go from Ephesians 5.22 uh, all the way to Ephesians 6.9. The family codes or household codes appear in the New Testament in a number of places. We have a very shortened version in Colossians chapter 3. We have another version in First uh, Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, chapters 2 and 3. And then we have another version in Titus chapter 2 where we see the family codes. And interestingly enough, a lot of people don't take the family codes all the way down to chapter 6 and verse 9, which includes the slave-master relationship. But it's very important to understand that that's a crucial part of the family code. And everywhere that you find the family codes, whether it's Colossians or First Peter or Titus or Ephesians, in every one of those you have instructions for parents, for children, 
for slaves and for masters because slaves were considered part of the household. And you have to understand that, again, in much of, uh, you know, Asia Minor, and Ephesians is a circular letter uh, that circulated to churches in Asia Minor, in much of these churches, the overwhelming majority of the members in these churches would have been slaves and women. Okay? That would have been the majority of the membership. And in some of these towns, the overwhelming majority of the people in the town would have been slaves. Sometimes as many as two-thirds of the population uh, would have been slaves. And so your household would have consisted of mother, father, children, and whatever servants that you had there attached to your home. So this is part of the household codes. And when we look at the context here in these household codes, we see something very particular that happens. In verse 22, for example, where we start the household codes, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, when we see wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, you need to know something. That the verb there, and our manuscripts, for example, from which I'm reading from the ESV, and our verbs there from the manuscripts from which we translate and derive the ESV and ESB and uh, other uh, translations that we know and love, that verb is not present in verse 22. That verb is present in verse 21. And in verse 22, it says, wives to your own husbands. So you have to go back up to verse 21. In verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, there's a problem. Because I'm going to verse 22, and I had to go back to verse 21, because the verb in verse 22 was actually derived from the verb in verse 21. So I went back to verse 21, and I found my verb. But verse 21 is the end of a paragraph. So now, I can't just grab a verb from the end of a paragraph i got to go to the beginning of a paragraph. Where's the beginning of the paragraph? Well, the beginning of the paragraph is in verse 15. So I have to go all the way back up to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15 to understand the significance of that verb in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, which is really borrowed from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. When I get there, I find something. It's very interesting. You find this in a number of places in the Scriptures. There is this telescopic unfolding that we find. You know how you take a telescope and you put it down, you know, and it's this big, and, you know, and you open up the different rings of the telescope which fit inside one another so that they can extend and expand? Well, if you begin in verse 15, here's the pattern that you find. Three sets of three. First, you have three contrasts. Three contrasts. On the third contrast, it opens up... It opens up, excuse me, to three commands. And then on the third command, it opens up further to three contexts. So let's look. First, the three contrasts. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. There's a contrast. Don't be unwise, but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Then look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There's your contrast. Don't be foolish, but understand the Lord's will. Then we go down to verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's the third contrast. Don't be unwise, but wise. Don't be foolish, but understand the Lord's will. 
Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, on the third contrast, that third contrast opens up, and we get three commands related directly to the third contrast. We find beginning in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Now, again, if you find somebody who says, I'm a spirit-filled believer, and you turn to them and then you say, wonderful, are you a worshipful person? And they say, no, I'm not, I'm not much for worship. That makes no sense, right? I'm a spirit-filled believer, but I'm not much for worship. Because, again, he tells you here, he answers the question, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? First one is that you're a worshipful person. Look at the next one, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a spirit-filled believer. Great. Are you prayerfully thankful towards God? No, I'm not much for prayer and thanksgiving towards God. Really. But you're filled with his Spirit. Again. That makes no sense, right? Now, come to verse 21. Third command. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm a spirit-filled believer. Great. Are you submissive to the authority that God has placed in your life? No, I'm not. Now, here's what's interesting. For most of us, the first two we get. For most of us, we would go, yeah, how can a person say that they're filled with the Spirit, but they're not worshipful? That they're filled with the Spirit, but they're not prayerful and thankful? But on the last one, we kind of go, no, I wouldn't have thought of that. It's okay. Paul did. Whether you did or not. That's a mark of being filled with the Spirit. Notice something. Believers, New Covenant, New Testament believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, our submission to God, again, we're operating from a closed canon, okay? This is, yeah, you need to be doing this right now, okay? We're operating from a closed canon, all right? So our, 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 our Bible is leather-bound, not spiral-bound, okay? We're not getting new stuff added into it, all right? So our submission to God is always indirect submission to God through our submission to the authorities that God puts in our life to represent his authority. Always. Always, always, always. So you submit to the authority that God has placed in your life. In your households, there's authority God's placed in your life. In the government, there's authority God's placed in your life. In the church, there's authority that God has placed in your life. And in all of those areas, notice those three institutions. Those are the three institutions that God gave us. And in all those institutions, God has given us authority that represents his authority to which we must submit. In the church, in the home, and in the state. And our submission to God is given to God through our submission in those areas. Now, that's the third command. Okay? We had three contrasts. On the third contrast, we get three commands. We had three commands. On the third command, we get three contexts. What are the contexts that we're given for submission that is evidence of this life that's filled with the Spirit? One, wives to husbands. Two, children to parents. Three, slaves to masters. 
Now, this is important, and let me just divert here for a moment, because there are a lot of people who take verse 21 and argue for mutual submission between a husband and wife based on verse 21, as though verse 21 is an umbrella only for verse 22. Fact of the matter is, verse 21 is an umbrella for 522 through 6-9. Verse 21 does not call for mutual submission between husbands and wives. It does not call for that. And let me tell you why it doesn't call for that. Number one, because of the context that I just gave you that makes it clear that it's not the umbrella for verse 22. Number two, because of the word that's used there, hupotasso. It is a military term. It means the submission that one offers to a higher-ranking officer in the military. Okay, Submission is not mutual in the military. Amen, somebody. What do you do when given an order by a superior officer? Salute and execute. That's what you do. Okay? So, again, it's a military term. Thirdly, mutual submission does not and cannot fit in these contexts. Because if you have mutual submission between husbands and wives, where are you going to do with mutual submission between parents and children? That dog won't hunt. What are you going to do with mutual submission between slaves and masters? It's not there. The other problem, of course, is that when you find the household codes and these other places in Scripture, Colossians 3, Titus 2, First uh, Peter 2 and 3, you don't find any clause like verse 21. So, again, this is not about mutual submission. This is about submission within these contexts. So when we look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and the submission of children to their parents... Here's what we find when we look at the context that we just looked at. God says, if you want to take the spiritual temperature of a young person, the place you take their spiritual temperature is in their home where they are submitting to their mother and their father. That's the place you take their spiritual temperature. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. I'm going to tell you something. If we have the privilege of having children, other people's children, under our care for any length of time, the most important thing for us to do is to constantly and consistently point them back to their parents in biblical submission to the authority that God has placed in their life. That is the most important thing for us to do to point them again and again and again back to their parents as the authority in their life, back to their parents and to teach them that it is their submission to their parents that is a barometer of their submission to God. You cannot say on the one hand that I am in submission to God and on the other hand say I'm not in submission to my parents. There's a reason that God titles the head of the household Father. That title didn't just come out of a vacuum. It didn't just come out of a hat. That is the title that God has called himself in his revelation to us. And that's the title that he gives to the head of the household, Father. And he says to children, you submit to your Father, That name is significant because it is a name that gives you a picture of my headship as God. Numbers chapter 30. 
find unbelievable passage of Scripture. Numbers chapter 30, let me paraphrase it for you. If a young woman makes a vow to the Lord while she lives in her father's house, and on the day that her father hears of it, he does not say anything against it, every vow of hers shall stand. But if on the day that he hears of it, her father opposes her, no vow of hers will stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. She makes a vow to God. And God says, if your daddy says no while you're under his authority, then your vow to me doesn't stand. Yeah, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. Okay? <laughs> and so we see this picture of parental authority in the life of children. We need to understand this. We need to grasp this. We need to uphold this. We need to support this. This is true of a teacher. This is true of a youth pastor. We point children again and again and again back to parental authority. And sometimes what that means is we point parents again and again and again back to parental authority. So when parents are coming in going, I don't know, what do you think? Well, I don't know, what do you think? It's your child. It's not my child. You tell me how I can support you in this. You tell me what you want to do in this. You tell me what your goal and your vision is for this child. You tell me where you're headed in your family with this child. And usually their response is going to be, What a great opportunity to reiterate. God sent this child home to you, not to me. And I'm here to help. I'm here to support. But I'm not going to usurp your authority. But I'd be glad to maybe sit down and talk through some things with you to help you understand how it is that you can have vision and direction and ownership in this area because it is of utmost importance. Not only the context, but when you look at it, what he does is he points back to the fifth commandment. Now, Paul's basically doing sort of a mini exposition of Deuteronomy 5 and 6 here. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the fifth commandment. Okay, so he goes to the fifth commandment, which is in Deuteronomy chapter five, and then to this promise there, you know, that you might live long in the land, which you see in Deuteronomy chapter five, and reiterate it in Deuteronomy chapter six. So Paul is pointing back, or yeah, Paul is pointing back to the fifth commandment. Now, interestingly enough, when Paul points back to the fifth commandment and to children obeying their parents and living along in the land. This is a covenantal promise. It's not one talking specifically about individual children, but about the covenant community. So now we see that the health and well-being of the covenant community really in many ways comes down to this picture of individual families carrying out their responsibility. And of children being reminded of their obligation 
to obey their parents and honor their father and their mother. For them to be reminded and pointed again and again and again to the obedience and to the honor of their fathers and their mothers. And when we are entrusted by their parents, it is important that we remind these children that they owe us obedience and honor. Listen, you don't do this. Don't say, you owe me obedience and honor because my title is teacher. No. You owe me obedience and honor because I stand in this classroom in loco parentes. In place, your mom and dad, they've entrusted me. They've placed you under my authority. And so you being obedient in this classroom is an act of your obedience to your mother and your father. It's not because of my title of teacher. My title of teacher does not give me authority. It is the trust placed in me by your parents that grants me authority. I mean, you're a teacher. You can go out and see any kid anywhere doing anything. You don't just walk up to a random kid and say, hey, kid, I'm a teacher. Therefore, you need to obey me. (laughs) The title of teacher does not give you that authority. What gives you that authority is a decision of a parent to partner with you in the discipleship of that child. That's what gives you that authority. So even when you are exercising authority in that child's life, you point back to the fact that you are exercising that authority as one given such by their parents. Again, pointing them back to the fifth commandment. Again, pointing them back to their obligation to be obedient. In the church, this becomes very interesting and sometimes difficult, especially when you have a young person who is converted, because on the one hand we have parental authority that they need to always be pointed back to, but then there is also the authority of the church and their responsibility, according to Hebrews thirteen seventeen, to obey and honor and submit to the biblical authority of the elders in their church. There is a third point here that if we don't see it there, if we didn't get it by the context, and that was just a little subtle for us, and if we didn't get it by his reference back to the fifth commandment. By the way, fifth commandment is not only the first commandment with a promise, it's the only one. And the fifth commandment is a bridge commandment between the first table of the law and the second table of the law. The first table of the law, the first four commandments are the vertical commandments, our duty to God. All of them, they go that way. Okay, I'm God, you don't get another one. It's my paraphrase of the first commandment. I like that. I'm God, you don't get another one. Commandment number two, don't make nothing that looks like me. Commandment number three, don't mess with my name. Commandment number four, while you're at it, don't mess with my day. Those are the vertical commandments, okay? You're not going to forget them now. Then you get to the horizontal commandments. The horizontal commandments are about our duty to our fellow man, okay? So honor your father and your mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Uh, don't steal. Don't bear false witness. And don't covet. 
Those are the horizontal commandments. But the fifth commandment is a bridge commandment. Why? Because honoring your father and your mother is actually an act of worship towards God and an act of love toward your fellow man. So it's a bridge commandment. So Paul points us back to that bridge commandment. And as if that wasn't enough, got the context here, we got the commandment here. How about just the two by four right across the face? <laughs> Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but you, fathers, papas, daddies, heads of household, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Whose job is it anyway? There's no room for question here. It is a father's responsibility. It is a parental responsibility to bring up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It is a duty that cannot be abdicated to the church or to the Christian school. It is my responsibility as a father. And for those of us who have the privilege opportunity to partner with parents in this process, it is our duty to always defer and point those children back to that place that will be held accountable for their discipleship. God cannot be clearer than he is right here. Fathers. Fathers. Well, we see this here in this text, and the immediate response, whether you're talking to people in church who work with young people or people in school who work with young people, the immediate response is this. The immediate response is, I get that, I understand that, but we don't have parents like that. I hear that from teachers, I hear that from youth pastors, I hear that from pastors, I hear that all over the place. I get that, and I understand that, but we don't have parents like that. Let me try to put it this way. Committed to classical Christian education. Just committed to it. Okay? We're here because we're committed to classical Christian education. But you know what? We just don't have many Christian families that go around thinking about the trivium. So there are two options. We throw up our hands and we say, we just don't have many classical Christian education-minded families. Therefore, we're just going to stop doing it and do some other kind of education. Or we say, we believe it's right. We're committed to it, and we're going to work to change the culture. Now, let's put it back in the other context. It is a parental responsibility. This discipleship of the next generation is a parental responsibility. Well, we don't have many families like this. Two choices. One, throw up our hands, usurp their authority, or two, work to change the culture. I'm not satisfied with the former answer. 
we don't have many parents who understand and appreciate their duty and their responsibility in this area. And the interesting thing is, whether it's the church or the Christian school, the result of that is we, we, we both make that statement, you know, whether you're talking about people who work with children, work with teenagers in church, or people who teach in Christian schools, both make that statement. We just don't have families who make this commitment. And then what comes after it is, and we look at children and watch them suffer in spite of what we're giving them, because of this huge gaping hole at the core of their lives where their parents are not giving them what they're supposed to. And we simply cannot try as we might fill that hole. Can we help? Can we make things better? Yes, we can help. Yes, we can make things better. Better to have, you know, a a, a classical Christian education than not. Whether you got that right parental foundation there or you don't have that right for you know, better to have it than not. But there's only one way to fill this void. And that is to raise up a generations of parents in general, but of fathers in particular, who understand and take very seriously their role and their responsibility to disciple their children. And I believe that is the desperate need of our age. And as a pastor, that is one of the most important commitments of my life and my ministry, is raising up a generation of men who understand this. First of all, being a man Who understands this? And secondly, preaching, teaching, writing, encouraging, admonishing, kicking in the backside, a generation of men who will get this. And I recognize that those who work in a Christian school, this is outside of your realm for the most part. This is our area. This is our territory. Well, I just want to encourage you. You are not alone. There are those out there on the church side who are saying to families in general and to fathers in particular, you must not abdicate. You cannot abdicate. And l- let me just say a word here to you, not as educators, but many of you are parents. Let me just say a word to you. I know that most of us in this room have never experienced this or seen it before in our lives. And I get a lot of people who come and they say, yeah, I get this and I understand it, but I've never seen it, therefore I can't do it. I would venture to say that most of you who are teaching in classical Christian schools weren't educated in classical Christian schools, yet you're figuring it out. Amen? You weren't, but you're figuring it out somehow. Why is it that on that we go, yeah, I'm going to figure it out. But when it comes to being a wife and mother or being a husband and father, we go, never seen it before, can't do it. I'll tell you why. Because the youth ministry is there and the Christian school is there so that we can abdicate and have somebody else to blame. 
That's why we throw up our hands. And that's why this message is important from all angles. That we be reminded that this is a parental responsibility. That it cannot be abdicated. I don't stand here saying this to you because I was raised in a home where this was taught to me. I grew up in drug-infested, gang-infested, South Central Los Angeles, California, raised by a single teenage Buddhist mother. The first time I ever heard the gospel was my first year at university. I knew my father, but I was not raised by my father. My wife and I, last two generations, both sides of our family, that's our parents, that's all of our siblings combined, last two generations, both sides of our families, 25 marriages, 22 divorces. That's my legacy. By the way, those three marriages that stayed together and didn't divorce, ours is one of them, and we'll be married 22 years on the 30th, so that leaves two others. One ended in premature death. The other, they raised one child, and that child was the product of an adulterous affair. That's my legacy. I have 25 first cousins. There is one besides me currently married to and living with a spouse. And of the children of my 25 first cousins, 83% of those children have been born out of wedlock. There are five of my 25 first cousins who were raised with their father in their home. They were all siblings. That's my legacy. But God is able. In spite of where we come from, God is able. In spite of what we've seen, God is able. In spite of what was done to us or for us, God is able. God is bigger than the way that you were raised. God is bigger than the lessons that you weren't taught. God is bigger than the circumstances in which you have found yourself. God is bigger than every obstacle in your way. I don't know what your difficulty is, but here's what I know. There's a power that resides in you that raised Christ from the dead. And here's what I have to say to myself every once in a while. It ain't bigger than a dead Jesus. Amen? Amen. I look at the obstacle in my life and I ask myself, is that bigger than a dead Jesus? Nope. If he can raise a dead Jesus, he can overcome that. I don't know what your obstacle is, but I really don't have to know. It ain't bigger than a dead Jesus. God can resurrect it. God can change it. And I believe that God is going to raise up a generation of men who take seriously their obligation, their opportunity, and their privilege to be the chief principal disciples in their homes. I believe that. And I'm here to ask you not to give up on that. Not to teach in such a way 
not to conduct yourself in such a way that you undermine that one iota, but to go about your business in such a way that you support that, that you celebrate that, that you encourage that, so that even if you don't see it occur in the life of a child's family, you so hold it up and elevate it that it's what that child comes to seek after, long for, and prayerfully exemplify in their own lives as a result of the influence that you've been able to have. God can do this. All right. I didn't do this in the last session, so I'm going to do it in this one. I want you to have an opportunity to ask me some questions. I have about 10 minutes for you to be able to ask me those questions. So if you have those questions, ask them right now so I can try to answer them as best I can. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. The question is, we homeschool our children, and do we educate them classically? Yes, we do. Um, we didn't start out that way because our kids first went to a private Christian school or earlier on. Um, we didn't know anything about home education. Um, and so when we first started to educate our children at home, again, my wife was a public school teacher, so that was never an option. Um, and so they went to the private Christian school. After that, we started to educate them at home. So we used a curriculum that they had used in their school when we started out because we felt like that would be the easiest transition. Um, but very shortly thereafter, um, started working with the classical education model. So, which just, you know, made me mad because I realized that when we started homeschooling, my first year as a homeschool dad, okay, was my first year, um, working on a second doctorate at Oxford University in England. So here I am, okay, we're starting to homeschool our kids. And all of a sudden, it's dawning on me. I'm not educated. I'm well-schooled and highly degreed, but I'm not educated. And the more we've delved into classical education, the more I've gone. And I I got robbed, you know. <laughs> I had, so, yeah, it's, yeah. Yes, ma'am. You would love to hear a little of my testimony. I thought I just shared with you a little of my testimony. Um, well, you know, the, 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 the person the Lord used to bring the gospel to me was a gentleman who was a Campus Crusade staffer who came to the locker room to talk to me about starting a Bible study with a football team because um, somehow he had gotten the idea that I was a person who would be interested in that. And in about... Five short minutes, he realized I didn't know Jesus from the man in the moon. And so he starts with his presentation. He's a Campus Crusade guy, so it was like probably four spiritual laws. And because of my upbringing, again, not having grown up in church, having a mother who was practicing Buddhist, the assumptions in his presentation had nothing to hang on with me. Um, so he just kind of went back and got his Bible, and he said, okay, this is a Bible, and spent three weeks with me answering my questions. 
And um, toward the end of that three weeks, he had taught me how to go and find my own answers to my questions. So I always say I was being trained in apologetics before I was converted, you know. Um, and it was it was through that process um, that, that 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 God saved me. Um, um, so here's my deal. Yes, back there in the back. Sorry. How confident am I that you as, as Christian teachers can fulfill your charge and not be part of the problem and uh, not be undermining parents? I, you know, I'm confident that you can, but I, I, I believe that if you're going to do that, it has to be from this perspective. I mean, that's why I believe it's important to share this here, because you have to go into this whole process with this view of parental responsibility and this view of your role in order to not be part of the problem. And I, I think it's, it's when we don't get this, when we don't understand this, and when we just think of, I'm a teacher, I'm going to save the world, you know, and not understanding the importance and the centrality and the fundamental foundational role of the home as it relates to this discipleship, I think that's when we can become part of the problem, whether it's in the school or in the church. And that's why I think this is so foundational. This is so fundamental because we have to reorient our thinking in this way so that we're not usurping that authority. So, yes. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, in a setting like that, that goes back to what I was saying earlier, where sometimes what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to teach parents about their duty and responsibility. Um, we're going to have to continue to put things back, that put the ball back into their court um, and sort of remind them of their duty and responsibility. Let me tell you something. My mother was not a believer, Okay. My mother's a practicing Buddhist. By the way, people always ask me this. Your mother's still a Buddhist? Nope. My mother was converted six months after me, and my father six months after that. But so, but here's the thing. My, my Buddhist mother, all right, and let me tell you who I was in school. Um, I, I went out uh, to a conference in California. Several of our elders went out to a conference in California, and I took them to my old neighborhood, and I took them to my old school, and they were just terrified. Um <laughs> But I went to my old elementary school, Coliseum Street Elementary School, and I walked into that office. Again, this place is all chained up, but I, I, I got into that office and I was going to, you know, just, I just stood there. All I, could do, I just stood there and cried. And they said, sir, are you all right? I said, better than you know. And I just looked at him and I looked into the principal's office and I said, I used to be in there every week. When I was in the third grade, Mr. Furamura, my, pres- my, my principal, Mr. Fourmore, told me it was the last, I think, three weeks of school. Mr. Fourmore said, Bodie, if you can just stay out of my office for the last three weeks of school, I'll take you out to eat anywhere you want to go. <laughs> so that's the kid I was, okay? And my mother 
Two things. One, my mother had a standing order. If you need me, call me. My mother whipped my behind in the principal's office at school on a number of occasions. They couldn't do it. She was like, that's cool. Just call me. I'll be up there, and I will just right there, California schools. You know, this is not supposed to happen, Mrs. Bauckham. Okay, that's fine. You just go outside for a minute. Okay? That's what my mother would do. Okay? Here's the other thing. And, again, this is a non-Christian. Well, I got old enough for my mother to realize that she couldn't do this on her own, that I needed a male hand in my life. We got on a bus. And we drove for three days on a bus from Buford, from Los Angeles, California to Buford, South Carolina, where I lived for a year and a half with her oldest brother, who was a retired drill instructor in the Marine Corps. <laughs> Hoorah! And, um, and, um, and, and I got out of trouble. Like, in a hurry, I did. Um, but here's the thing. If an unbelieving single mother can get that, there's got to be some way that these parents who are paying money to give their children a Christian education can get that. There's got to be some way that we can impress upon them the importance of this and the significance of this. Because that kid who's having dress code issues gets dressed at the house. Amen? Amen. So when a young lady comes up wearing a sk- <laughs> you know, it's bad that she did that, but it's worse that her mama probably bought it, you know? So, again, we got to go back to the root of this. Does, does that mean that there's a, you know, bing, bang, boom? You know, it's like, no. But this is our mentality. This is our framework. And we got to keep pushing it back to where it belongs, you know? I'm, you know, there's other issues as to, you know, the suspensions and expulsions and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And that's, I'll leave that to you. But, um, you know, big old stick. Too. I mean that. Yes. Would I recommend? Okay, it's a good question. Would I recommend? Um, and again, I'm an outsider here, so you take all this with a grain of salt. Would I recommend that you, you would accept the children of unsaved parents? And I know that there are schools that, you know, divide on this, that there are some schools who, I mean, that's their goal. They want to be evangelistic and they want to have, um, you know, children to come to their, their, their school, um, from those settings and backgrounds. Um, is there a place for that? I think there can be a place for that. There's other schools that see themselves as this, partnership with Christian parents who have an obligation to give their children a Christian education. I, I, I think for me, the question is not if one of those is right, the other is wrong. I think the question is, you have to make a decision as to why your school exists and respond accordingly. You know? So, if that's why your school exists, 
if that is the ethos there at your school and who you are and what you're doing, then go ahead and do it. But don't turn around and look at this other school that has a different paradigm and somehow fault them because of their paradigm. Uh, they have a different constituency. They exist for a different purpose. Um, and, and, I, and I, you know, I, I think there's room for, for both of those. Yes. Yeah, the question is how we go about in our church implementing the mindset that we just talked about. Well, for one thing, in our church, we have no systematic age-graded ministries of any kind in our church. Um, we, we emphasize in every way that we can the importance of family discipleship. Um, basically, we look men in the eye and say, I double-dog dare you to disciple your family. We'll teach you how to do it. We'll encourage you to do it. We'll coach you. We'll hold you accountable. We'll give you a swift kick in the seat of the pants when we need to, but we're not going to do it for you. And we're not going to have any structures here in this church that would even give you an inclination that we, that we exist to do it for you. Um, so we're way, way out on the other end of this thing uh, from our perspective. Um, and so, you know, with it, it, everything that we do, we don't even have a nursery. Um, so, you know, my, my small children, my youngest is eight months old. So we got an eight month old, we got an almost two year old, we got an almost three year old, we got a four year old, we got a six year old. Yeah, so, I mean, they're all right there in there with us in church. And sometimes, even when I'm preaching, you know, I gotta take a break to go spank a kid during the last song, you know, so that I can get back in there and, and, uh, you know, do my sermon. And I'll have some people who'll say, you know, like, well, you know, how do you get your mind sort of ready and in a, you know, spiritual sort of focus before you get up there and preach? Who says it's not spiritual for me to exercise my parental duties like that in that context? Um, it, it is. It's as spiritual as anything else that I do, you know. Um, so we're, we're, we're way out there on the, on the other end of the spectrum as it relates to this. Um, so. Yes, I'm going to go back here and then up here. Yes. Yes. Are you, as a school, when you try to teach your parents, usurping the role of the church? You could be, depending on the context in which you try to teach your parents. But I think there is some obligation for you to clarify the relationship that you have with those parents. So... You, to, to one extent, you have to clarify that you, you have to clarify that relationship. But I think you can get into a place where you sort of present yourself as the discipler uh, of 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 the parents and have this, you know, ongoing. We're going to make you and shape you and mold you into the kind of parents you know fitting for our school. It, that that could happen, and I think that's something that we have to always be on the lookout for. But it it it, it, it could happen. You know, especially since there is some obligation to clarify the relationship and the responsibilities. Yes, here and then up here. What does discipling all nations mean to me? Um, in the Great Commission, Pantata um, Ethne, I think it means to make disciples among every people group. I think it is a church planting this is the church planting mission that Christ left to his followers. I think that we are to 
erect churches, to plant churches um, among every people group in the world. Yes. <laughs> well, you know that you know that that's the delicate matter of pastoral care. Um, there is no way to stop parents from having difficulties, um, and there is no single way to respond to a family that is in the midst of a crisis. But that's part of ongoing pastoral care, um, and that's why it's very important that we do that on an ongoing basis. I mean, at our church. You know, um, you know, every one of our families is assigned to one of our elders. Every one of our families is getting a, a monthly phone call. Um, you know, the men in our church are getting monthly face-to-face from our elders. The families in our church are getting visits at least, you know, once, not two or three times a year from our elders. I mean, we are actively shepherding the flock and in the lives of people. Um, so there's no there's no substitute for that. But if we're just, you know, sort of doing our thing and in responding when things have gotten out of hand and we're in crisis mode, man, yeah, we, we, I mean, we're starting out behind the eight ball, you know. Um, so there has to be an active process of, of shepherding the flock. And even then, you know, the world, the flesh, the devil, they're all busy, you know. Um, so, all right, is there one more? Yes, over there, yes. Yeah. 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 Well, that was the purpose of my first presentation. I mean, the purpose of my first presentation was to address that very issue. And the reason that we're seeing that happen, I mean, there are myriad reasons that we see that happen. Um, and we talked about, you know, the strain on, on families that sometimes causes that to happen, separations and, and things of that nature, economic stress or things. But there's also this idea of, you know, the God of sport. They got to go to the school where they can, you know, do the sport. That's idolatry. Um, and, and, you know, there's also this thing of materialism. You know, we got to go here because this is where we're going to get, you know, the, the, the best you know, preparation to get us into the right school and get us into the right, you know, track or whatever. Um, it, it's all those things that I talked about in that first preparation, I mean, in that first presentation. So I would recommend that you grab a copy of that first presentation from, from this morning about um, multi-generational discipleship um, and go through that because, I mean, those are the things that are occurring. 
Um, and what I talked about earlier this morning is not just in classical Christian education. That's what's happening in the homeschool movement, too. You know, uh, in the homeschool movement, it's the same pattern. They get up to high school, and then all of a sudden it's, well, you know, they've got an AP math class, you know. And then you tell them, okay, wait, it's an advanced placement math class in a public school. <laughs> don't buy that, you know. You don't have to have a math degree to teach math in a public school. You have to have an education degree. Um you know, so anyway, with that, you know, the sports and all these other things, it's the same thing in both arenas. And ultimately, it boils down to an issue of idolatry. We, I mean, we just do not believe that discipling our children is enough. We do not believe that giving them a well-grounded, solid, biblical, classical, theological education is enough. The, the world says that we have to jump through these hoops and so we're going to go jump through these hoops because that's what the world says. Whether it's the world saying you got to have this, you know, on your transcript, or it's the world saying your life is incomplete unless you have the experience of being a cheerleader. You know, um, in, in, in either instance, you know, in either instance, we're talking about usually an issue of idolatry. And so that's why we've got to understand, like I said in the first presentation, why we do this. Communicate why we do this. Reiterate why we do this to the children, to ourselves, to our faculty, our leadership, um, and to those families that are involved. When they, when they come in, they need to know from the beginning we do this because it's biblical. We do this because we understand the parental responsibility. We do this because it's about the kingdom of God to which we belong. And we do this because we believe we want to be a blessing to the kingdom of man. I mean, that's, that's, you know, so. But get the CD from the first. Deal. All right. A couple of websites for you guys. Um, Votibacham.org, um, just myname.org. That's our ministry website. GraceFamilyBaptist.net. It's our church website. Um, and then SermonAudio.com slash Votibacham. You go there, and there are some free uh, messages that you can, can download um, as well. All right. Um, is there – before I leave, I have a – packet of materials here that I was going to give away to somebody. Um, so, is there anybody who has an, an anniversary today? Your anniversary? Okay, here you go. Thank you. Um, hey, you know what? Let me just thank you guys for making a, a homeschooler feel very welcome and at home uh, here among people who I consider my brothers, my friends, my allies, um, because we're about the same thing, and that is seeing to it that we give a solid, biblical, theological, well-rounded, classical Christian education to the next generation. And so God bless you for doing what you do. I love you. And um, I will pray for you and ask that you do the same for me. Thank you.